You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. I don't know if you've ever had a cookout where a bunch of guys come over or Maybe you go on a golfing weekend or something. It won't be long, probably in the car on the way to your to your vacation or trip or wherever you're going. Somebody will bring up some accident they had when they were in their 20s and how badly they were injured. And they will talk at length about how bad the accident was. Maybe it was a motorcycle. Maybe it was a car accident. And then it'll accompany them pulling up their sleeve and showing you their scars. Uh, and, and they will... Us men, we will wax eloquently about how the how we just suffered and how we almost didn't get through it, and and we'll talk at length about it. And then once that story is finally over, and it takes some time to get all that out, right? Then then the next guy will step forward and say, "Well, yeah, that was pretty bad, uh, but let me tell you about when I had this accident." And if you've got four or five men standing around, by the time you get to that fifth man, uh, it's pretty bad. I mean, it's. So, so the, the key in that is to save your story to the end, okay? Don't, don't be the one to speak up first. You've got to save it to the end, and uh, it, it's, it's going to be worse, right? I often wonder, well, why is it we do that? And not just with men, but if you've noticed, if you've got some close friendships, when you get together and you hadn't seen each other for a while, you know, we often start out talking about our struggles, you know, it may be that, that, that you've had a great season, a, a lot of happiness and a lot of joy, but it seems like in our friendships, we gravitate towards the conversations about our struggles. Now, now from a Christian perspective, in that testimony, in that sharing time, we immediately or eventually get to the part where God intervenes, right? We get to the part where, where God did something, stepped into our life, turned the course of events, and we share that as well. And we talk about how that, that when we were in that storm, whatever it was, when we were in the middle of it, I mean, many of you have a, an incredible testimony about Hurricane Matthew and Hurricane Florence and what you went through. And, and in my conversations with you about that, you will say something like this, you know, in the storm, in the moment when the water's coming up into the house, you, you had a hard time finding God in all that, didn't you? I mean, it's kind of our, our human nature to look at the problem more than we look at God sometimes. I, I kind of think of myself as an optimist, right? The glass is half full. I always try to see the opportunity, the blessing, God's hand moving. But I'm going to be honest with you. There are times when I've got my own storm going on that all I see is the storm. I don't see the, the Creator over it. I don't see the God and His sovereignty and His grace over it. And I will, I will put my eyes on the problem. And God, in the middle of that storm, is saying, hey, I'm right here. I never left you. I've never forsaken you. We tend to think that, don't we? We tend to think that, that in that moment of pain and affliction, that, that God's sitting in a, in a big lawn chair somewhere up in heaven, and he's got a glass of iced tea, and he's taking it easy, and he's not the least bit concerned about your problems. He's not the least, as a matter of fact, not only is he not concerned, but, but he certainly isn't coming to your rescue. Now, I want to say from the very beginning, all of the stuff I just said to you, the pessimism, putting our eyes on the problem, thinking God's off somewhere running the universe or taking it easy and not concerned, all of that is lies from Satan. Every bit of that comes right out of darkness because every bit of that speaks a bit against the character of God himself. He's very present that his work in your life in the middle of the storm, is profound. You've heard me say this before. It's worth saying again that, that in any given moment in the life of a disciple of Christ, God is working in some 10,000 ways. I'm sure it's more than that. But we'll just use the number. He's working in some 10,000 ways in your life, and we may not even see one. We may not even be cognizant of the one thing God's doing. And all of those things that God is doing and all the work that He's doing on our behalf we don't always see it. We don't even recognize it. Sometimes we don't even want to acknowledge that it's there because to acknowledge that it's there will go against all the lies that we're believing. This church at Thessalonica, boy, they were going through some hard times. As we saw in the first letter, 
Paul had some awesome things to say about this church. They were sharing the gospel so effectively in that community that Paul just kept running into people all over Macedonia who were being touched by the ministry of the church at Thessalonica. He, he goes on in those first three chapters, as you remember, to, to exhort them, to encourage them. And then, and then in chapter 4, he kind of gets to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue, as you remember, the people were beginning to grieve and live as though those who had died in the faith were without hope. Now, we don't know if that was the result of false teaching or just that Paul says that they were just ignorant. They didn't know. Paul only had a few weeks with him, maybe five to seven, if you remember, the first time that he plants this church. And no doubt in those five to seven weeks that Paul was there, Paul absolutely taught the gospel. He taught all that Jesus was, was about, what his ministry was about. And certainly Paul would have covered where Jesus talked about the last days. And Paul does an awesome job helping them to understand what it means. And then in chapter 5, if you remember in chapter 4, verses 13 and following, he talks about the rapture, that, that moment when the church is taken out, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who will remain will be called up together in the clouds with the Lord, so shall we ever be. Preceding all of that will be a shout of an archangel. There will be a trumpet that will sound, that will set all of this in motion. And then in chapter 5, he begins to talk about a whole different set of, of circumstances and events concerning the second coming, when Jesus comes and put his foot, will put his foot upon this earth. Apparently, apparently, a false teacher creeps into the congregation. We don't know this for sure. But from what I can tell, after Paul sends the first letter to the church, and they read this letter aloud multiple times, there's a false teacher somewhere in the midst, and he begins to step in, and he begins to take what Paul said and begins to twist it. He teaches the church that, no, in fact, they've missed the second coming, and now all they have to do is face pain and destruction and judgment. So now these people are caught between two. They're, they're caught between Paul, who said, if we remember the end of the letter last week, Paul says, you're not in darkness, you're in light. If you remember, and I told you to underline this verse in chapter 5 where it says, verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. I told you to underline that because it's crucial. The people are struggling now between this teacher who's in their midst and what Paul has already taught, and Paul hears about this. Now, he's still in Corinth. He wrote the first letter in Corinth. While he's in Corinth, he hears about that the church may even be more confused now than it was before they got the first letter. There's only been a few months between the first letter and the second letter. So Paul sits down, and he's going to write this second letter. And in this second letter, he's going to unpack a little further what we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 about this thing we talk about, the tribulation, the Antichrist, when Jesus returns and sets foot on the earth. Paul is going to expound on that even deeper, but before he does, he has to deal with something in this church. This church, not only was it impoverished, this was a very poor church. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, you'll find where, where Paul uses the generosity of this church to basically put guilt upon the church at Corinth for not giving to the church in Jerusalem. Paul says about this church that they gave so much, they gave beyond what anybody thought was capable of them. That, that in their poverty, they gave and gave and gave towards the church in Jerusalem that was going through a very difficult time. So this church not only was impoverished, but this church was being persecuted severely. Now listen, it wasn't because the church had done anything wrong. Oftentimes we think of suffering, that a person suffering, they must have sinned in some great way. This church was doing the right things for the right reasons. As a matter of fact, in this letter, you're going to see in just a moment that, that they were growing. Not only in number, but they were growing in faith. But yet, they were being persecuted for that faith. And you've got to understand this. You've got to get this church. You've got to get this. As we've seen with this church, they are, they are taking seriously the Great Commission. For this church, the Great Commission is not some kind of suggestion. It's a command, and they took it seriously. This church was being faithful with the gospel. This church was loving one another. This church was growing in their faith. And make no mistake about it, when any church or any Christian takes seriously the Great Commission, 
and take seriously the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors ourselves. Make no mistake about it. Satan is going to attack with everything he's got. Why do you think that is? Because if Satan and the demons of darkness can set this church on the sidelines, get them focused on something else, get them off of this focus of sharing the gospel, then he's done his due. He's done what he wanted to do to silence a group of people who were once in love with Jesus. Have you ever heard about a church that was once in love with Jesus, that once shared the gospel, that once took the Great Commission seriously? you ever heard about churches? Have you ever heard about Christians like that? No doubt you know people who were at one point were on fire, but no longer. Why? Well, because Satan does a really, really good job at focusing on churches and Christians who take this seriously, who love Jesus with all their heart. This church was being persecuted heavily. Now, when you get on Google, if you go to Google after church today, don't do it now. If you go to Google after a while, because I know right now you're reading your Bible. I know that. But you got your phone out, you're reading the Bible. I know you are. So you're not going to Google right now. You're not updating your Facebook, and you're certainly not checking Dorian's track. I'm sure you're not doing that. Later on today, get on Google. I want you to search this. Books on happiness. You will find thousands and thousands of books on happiness. From a secular perspective, Christian perspective, you'll see titles like 10 Steps to True Happiness. You'll find a title that says, Happiness is in you. In other words, you've got to look inward to find your happiness. Uh, you'll find another book that says, Happiness is connected to success. That as long as you have success, then you can be happy. That's actually kind of true, isn't it? As long as we're successful, then we can be happy. You're going to find thousands of books. But what you're not going to find is how to suffer well. You might find a few, but you won't find many. How to suffer well? What does that mean? I mean, in our American culture, suffering is always bad. There couldn't possibly be anything good to come out of suffering. There couldn't possibly be anything good to come out of persecution. There couldn't be anything good out of my, my marriage being almost on the brink of falling apart. There's no way that in this Christian marriage that God could take this and turn it around to something good. Can He? That's what Paul's going to address because Paul has to address this first. Before he can get into the timeline of events with the Antichrist and the tribulation, Paul has to deal with the suffering of this church because you have to know this was on their mind. Our suffering is evidence of a great work that God is doing. Now, you might not believe me yet, but hold on. Christian, your suffering, not necessarily persecution for your faith. Maybe you've experienced that. But suffering in general, whatever you're going through, whatever storm you're in, God is doing some great work in the middle of that mess you're in. That's what Paul's going to say to the church at Thessalonica. Look at verse 1. We'll start at the very beginning. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. In spite of the poverty, in spite of the persecution, in spite of the affliction, Paul says to this church, I give thanks for you because in the middle of the mess you're in, your faith is growing, not just growing, but growing abundantly, flourishing. That the faith of this church, instead of getting weak in the middle of the storm, is getting stronger. Notice what else he says. He says that, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So instead of there being fighting among themselves in the middle of their poverty, in the middle of their persecution. No, they're having more and more love for one another. And as they have more love for one another, that love spills out of that church into the community of lost people. Now we begin to see why this church has been so effective with the gospel. You know why? It's because they love one another, they love God, and their faith is growing. And that should be 
That should be the testimony that we would want to have, not only for ourselves individually, but for Hyde Park Baptist Church, that someone would say that even in the middle of all that we've been through, and folks, we've been through it, still are. With all of the campus problems and all the hurricane problems and all the issues, that not only this church, but the body individually that you've went through over the last few years, you've been through some stuff. As I've walked with you, our church has walked with you. But to say that through all of it, your faith is growing abundantly and your love for one another has grown also. I don't know about you, but that's the testimony I want for myself personally and for this church corporately is that as we go through stuff, whether that be marital or whatever it is, that through it, as a disciple of Christ, your faith has grown. I know that some of you have that testimony. I've heard you share it. By losing everything, you found what really mattered, didn't you? By losing all of your personal belongings in Matthew or Florence or both, in that moment you found what was most important. That's the work of God and your faith was built and your love in your marriage, your love for other Christians, your love for a lost and dying world increased because you went through that valley. Notice what else Paul says. Verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith. I bet that the church at Corinth was getting tired of hearing about the church at Thessalonica. Because Paul's getting these reports. Remember, he sent Timothy back to that church to make sure that it stayed on track. And I bet you as he's talking to the church at Corinth, he's like, man, I got to tell you what's happening over at Thessalonica. I got to tell you what's happening with them, guys. I bet they got tired of hearing about it. But Paul kept boasting about it and ultimately boasting in God. And what was he boasting about? What was he telling the church at Corinth about, the church at Thessalonica? Notice this, steadfastness in faith. That steadfastness means endurance. It means they're standing firm. I picture it like this. A big old oak tree where its roots run deep. And the hurricane comes and the winds blow and the rains batter it. The tree flexes and it moves back and forth, but it does not move. That is what he means by steadfastness. This church at Thessalonica was getting hit with everything that Satan had, and they stood fast. Their roots run deep. Not only their steadfastness, but also their faith. Their trust in God was increasing. But now this next part is going to surprise you. I mean, we would understand that Paul would brag about their steadfastness and their faith, but notice this in all your persecutions and afflictions that you're enduring. Paul would tell the church at Corinth, hey church, um, not only are, is, are they being steadfast, but let me tell you about their persecutions and their afflictions. Let me tell you what they're going through. Let me tell you the pain they're experiencing. And let me tell you that they are enduring in the spite of all of that. But what is more mind-blowing than that is when we get to verse 5. Now, in the headings in your Bible, in your Bible, Probably right over verse 5, you've got a little heading there. It says, the judgment at Christ's coming. That's what it says in my Bible. It may say something different in yours. Sometimes these headings get in the way of the flow of Scripture because verse 5 ties directly into verse 4. Listen to what verse 5 says. Listen to what Paul says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Uh, Paul, what are you talking about? What is evidence? Well, it's in verse 4 steadfastness and faith, persecutions and afflictions. This, these things that the, the church was enduring, their faith, their steadfastness, their persecutions, their afflictions, you know what was happening? Paul says that is evidence of something. It's evidence of the work of God in your life. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, what does Paul mean? Man, did I dig on that thing. I, I worked with that. I thought, Paul, what could you possibly mean that person, and you know what stood out to me in verse 4, right? It was not the faith and the steadfastness. What stood out to me was the persecutions and afflictions. How can that be evidence of the righteous judgment of God? Sometimes I've learned this, sometimes, and this, this is just a piece of advice off to the side here. When you're digging into God's Word and you just can't get your mind wrapped around it, go take the dog for a walk. Um, go, go, go take a walk. Go do some exercise. Uh, go take a trip in your car. Uh, go get your cone of ice cream and chill out for a little bit, okay? Because that's what I had to do. I had to step back from it, and then it hit me like a ton of bricks. 
as this church is being persecuted and afflicted, they were enduring. And the endurance of that church testified to something greater than themselves. I mean, think about it. Here's a poor church, a brand new church, very young church. I mean, this, this church really didn't even have a key leader. They didn't have an apostle. Timothy's been there, but Timothy's left. There is no reason for this church to stand under the persecution and the affliction. And the only reason that they did is because it is a testimony of God's work in their life, a testimony of God's presence in this young church that was serious about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's evidence. It's evidence of God's work. It's evidence of His righteous judgment. In other words, it's evidence that there is right and there is wrong, and this church is trying to be a testimony of what is right and what is good and what is lovely and what is perfect and what is pure, the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, no, no. You see, the persecution and the affliction is not evidence that God has abandoned you. The afflictions and the suffering is the evidence of God's work in your life in the midst of the suffering and the afflictions. You see, it's in the middle of the storm that we're able to see with clarity the work of God's hand if we choose to look for it. C.S. Lewis wrote an incredible book. It's one of his classics called The Problem of Pain. You need to read it. And I get this quote from his, from this book. Quote, pain insists upon being attended to. That's true, right? If there's something hurting in your life, if it's your marriage or whatever that's hurting, all your attention goes to it. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to our conscience, but He shouts in our pain. It is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What is a megaphone? End quote. Pain. You, you know this, Christian. You know what I'm talking about here. You know that when you look back across what God has done for you in the middle of those storms, you look back now with a different perspective than you looked at it when you were in the middle of it. You look at it totally different now because you, when you look back, you see the beauty of God's hand working in your life. But I'm here to say to you that you can see that in the middle of the storm if we don't take our eyes off Him. This church in Thessalonica they were being afflicted, and, and, and Paul says to them, listen, that affliction that you're going through and the fact that you're enduring is the testimony of the presence of God in your life. Not that He's off running the universe. No, exactly the opposite. He is there with you, blessing you, empowering you, guiding you, and helping you to go through it. That's a totally different perspective than the one I often carry into the storm. Notice what else he says here. He says that they may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. We've got to be careful with that. Paul's not saying to the church at Thessalonica, hey guys, if you'll continue to endure, you'll be found worthy for the kingdom. No, 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 that's already been taken care of. They've already put their faith in Jesus. They've already come from darkness into light. So it's not like somehow they're working, out, working their salvation out as far as trying to work their way into heaven. That's not at all what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying if you'll work and you'll endure, then maybe, just maybe, you'll get into the kingdom. No, Paul is saying that the fact that they're enduring speaks to the reality that they've been born again. Because otherwise they wouldn't be able to do it. Where did that strength come from to get you through that mess? Where did that come from, Christian? Well, it came from the Holy Spirit living in you. He says this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief. When we're in the middle of the pain and the suffering, when we're in the middle of the storm, how oh, we want relief. We just want relief. And also, many times in my life and in yours as well, God has stepped in and given us some time of relief, even in the storm, right? There's been times where God stepped in and gave you a little break. Or maybe somebody came by with an encouraging word or maybe took you out to lunch to take your mind off of what was going on to, to laugh a little bit, right? To, to be able to separate from it. And God was faithful in those moments to give you some relief, but that's not the relief God is talking about here through the hand of Paul. He says, then to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus does that. What he's saying is, is that there will be a day 
with all that you've experienced, all the affliction and all the pain, for every disciple of Christ, you're going to come into a kingdom. You're going to fully inherit it. And in that kingdom, there is no more pain and suffering and affliction and persecution. All that's going to be left aside. Paul says, that's the day where you're going to be, and that word means loosened, where he talks about relief. A relief from the pain, a relief. That's something you want. It's something we long for. And I believe that God put that there. I believe the reason that you want to be out of the affliction is because God put that in you. Because it's a longing for heaven. It's a longing for something better. It's a longing to get out of this sin-cursed, broken world. And the problem with the storm is, is when we get in the middle of it, we take our eyes off every bit of that. All the truth and the theology and the doctrine that we know about God just seems to leak out. And we get our face down in the middle of that mess. And we believe that God has forgotten all about us when in fact, He's right there with us. You know, there's a great place to see this. The, the, the greatest example in the 66 books of your Bible, the greatest example of this is none other than Mount Calvary itself. In a moment in time where everyone looked at that situation, the disciples included, and says there's no hope. Jesus has been arrested. He's going to be crucified. And this is the end of his ministry. This is, there's no way anything good could possibly come out of Jesus being hung on a Roman cross and beaten to death. There is no way, any way, that God could be in the middle of this or working in this. The disciples themselves had given up. But in the greatest moment of suffering the world has ever seen was also the greatest moment of God's blessing the world has ever seen. In that single moment in time, when the blood is dripping out of the Savior, in that moment, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, my sin, your sin, placed on the perfect Son of God, dying in my place so that I would not have to experience the wrath of God. And the greatest moment of suffering was the greatest moment of love and beauty the world has ever seen. Now, the world doesn't understand that. How can a cross be beautiful? Because it's in that cross I've been forgiven. It's in that cross that blood was shed on my behalf. It's in that moment that we see the hand of God working in the greatest suffering ever. And then you know what Jesus said before he left? You know what Jesus said to his disciples? He said to them, you take up a cross and you follow me. In other words, Jesus, following Jesus means that we are going to suffer with him. That's what we signed up for. We put our faith in him, whether you realize that or not. Jesus came to rescue us from the penalty of sin. And how did he do it? By entering the suffering. You see, God's not sitting in a lawn chair up in heaven after all. And our greatest need, and our greatest need, what did God do? God came and dwelt among us. The Logos, Jesus, the Word, dwelt among us, took on flesh. God walked with us. Jesus walked among us, suffered along with us, and then suffered like no one has ever suffered for the sole purpose of giving us life. So God, instead of sitting in the lawn chair, comes, walks among us visibly. But there's a shift in this text that you've got to see. Up until this point, he's talked about the church to continue to endure and that it's evidence, evidence of God's work in their life. But notice in verse 7, actually verse 6, he says, This indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You, know, you may be asking the question, how can the suffering and the brokenness in this world continue? How is it that there are people starving and struggling and hurting? How is it that kings and people of power raise up in power and then afflict other people? How long is this going to go on? Why is God not doing something? Why is God not going to intervene? Why is He not going to put a stop to it? Well, He is. And can you not imagine that the church at Thessalonica is wondering the same thing? When is our suffering and our pain going to end? When is God going to do something? If He is just and He is loving and we're a part of His family and we've been adopted into His family, then a good father is always going to protect His children. Where is our good father and why is He not protecting? Well, Paul says, hold on. 
Because those who are afflicting you are going to be afflicted in like manner, and God is going to be the one who pours out the vengeance. That is not my job, and it's not your job. Vengeance against those who've done me wrong or done the church wrong, that is not my job. Because if I try to do it, I will do it with wrong intentions. God being perfect and righteous and holy, He is the one who can pour out vengeance and do, vengeance and do it exactly with righteousness. He says they will be repaid. Verse 8, an inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. Lost person, let me, let me shift to you just for a moment. In our culture and in our world, um, American culture in particular, we, we have this idea that, that God is so much loving that He could possibly never judge. So, so lost person, what, what you may have a tendency to do is to view God only from His love, but not from His justice. As a matter of fact, you may be reading websites that tell you exactly the same thing. You may read things online or get a book and read the book, and in that book it says that there really is no place of judgment, there really is no hell, there really is no place of torment, and that in the end, God is just going to welcome everybody in because all people are God's children. You ever heard that statement? That everybody is God's children. And that in the end, God is just going to welcome us all in in one big family and we'll all sing some song together and it'll just be perfect and everything will be fine. I draw your attention to what Paul's saying here in verse 8. Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Could it be any clearer? Paul says there's a dividing line. It sounds to me like Paul believes that there's two groups of people. It sounds to me as though Paul, just like Jesus, believed that there are people who've been born again and there are people who have not been. And that, that, that there really is no foggy gray middle, that there's a clear dividing line. And what divides lost from saved is those who put their faith in Jesus have moved from darkness into light. There really is no gray area here, is there? There's no third group, fourth group. There's two groups. There's two groups of people in this room today. Only two. Regardless of your race, regardless of your culture, regardless of where you have your membership, there's two groups of people in this room, saved and lost. Now listen to what Paul says. Paul says there is no way you're going to escape the judgment that's been set aside for you if you reject Christ. I know that the verses I'm getting ready to read here are hard to hear. I got that. I didn't like hearing them either when I was lost. Notice what else Paul says. He says, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That term eternal destruction seems contradictory, does it not? I mean, if, if, if my house is destroyed with fire, if, if my house catches on fire before I get home and it's completely consumed in that fire, the house is destroyed. There's really nothing le left to destroy, right? The destruction is now over, and now we begin the rebuilding. But notice how Paul describes the judgment of God upon those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says it will be an eternal destruction. How could that possibly be? How could a person be eternally destroyed? Well. Jesus spoke about it more than anybody else did. It's a place of torment reserved for those who reject Jesus Christ. Paul says there's a clear dividing line. There are those in darkness and those in light. God doesn't send anybody to this place. You choose to go there on your own by rejecting the gospel. Paul says that if you reject it, you will suffer punishment and eternal destruction. Notice this, away from the presence of the Lord. Away from the presence of the Lord. Did you know that you've never lived a day on this earth apart from the Lord? You could be a stone-cold atheist. You could be absolutely, absolutely immersed in atheism, that God doesn't exist. You've accepted it. You believe it. You don't even know why you're here today, but you have lived your entire life with the idea that God doesn't exist anywhere. 
Well, you can believe that if you want, but I want you to understand something. Every day of your life, you have been the recipient of God's grace and God's mercy, even if you reject the reality of His essence and His being. If you got up this morning and you turned on a faucet and there was clean water that flowed out, guess what? God blessed you with that. You had a cereal box in your cupboard this morning. You got some Cheerios out and some fresh milk out of a cold refrigerator. God blessed you with that even while you're shaking your fist in His face. You can't get away from Him. No matter how much you reject Him, no matter how much you hate Him, you are still the recipient of God's goodness and God's grace. If you breathe air into your lungs in the last minute, and I hope you have, that was God's air, not yours. He let you have that. Your heart's beating in your chest because God allows it to. So even if you reject Him, even if you hate Him, even if you decided He doesn't exist, you still receive blessings from Him. And that's just the grace of God. It's incredible, isn't it? But hear me clearly. There will be a day, if you reject Christ, that you will be separated from the presence of the Lord. And I, when, when I think about all this in context and all that Jesus had to say about this place of torment, to me, as a Christian, as a born-again believer, the worst thing I can possibly imagine about this place of torment is the hopelessness. That in that place, the presence of God does not dwell. No one in this room has ever experienced that. But the cold reality of it is, is that all hope, the, the very essence of love is gone. And there will never, ever be an opportunity for you to come out of that suffering. For God to be just and for God to be perfect, for God to be holy, all sin must be punished. He can't, he can't turn His back. He can't, he can't just turn a blind eye to your sin and say, okay, I'm just going to let you go. No, all sin must be punished. And by rejecting Jesus Christ, you are putting yourself in a position to not only be eternally destroyed, but also from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. In other words, His power, the power that you're living in today will be removed from you. So not only will His power be gone and His presence be gone, but you'll be left in eternal destruction. Lost person, that is your future apart from Christ. Notice what else he says. He says, away from the presence of the Lord, the glory of His might, verse 10, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled among all who have believed because of his test because our testimony to you was believed. Paul says, but not so for you, church. Not so. Not so for you, church at Thessalonica. Remember I told you in the other letter that you've come from darkness and the light, that you're not waiting for a day. You've not been appointed to a day of wrath. You have an appointment in the presence of the King. Not because of anything you did. Not because you're a good person. Not because you fixed yourself. No, because you put your faith in something greater than yourself. Jesus Christ, the righteous. His righteousness was applied to you. And God's wrath was turned away from you. He says that that day when He comes, when Jesus comes, we'll be able to stand in His presence because we believed in Christ. Because we put our faith in Him. Verse 11. I want you to notice this. Paul begins to pray. Now, I would imagine, maybe you would imagine, that it would be a rather, I don't know, appropriate prayer for Paul to pray at this moment that, that the church at Thessalonica would be delivered out of their persecutions. It would be appropriate, I think, for Paul to pray, just like I often pray when I'm in a storm. God, pull me out of this mess. Change my circumstances. In other words, I want to be comfortable again. Now, I don't say it just like that, but that's exactly what I mean most of the time. Just be nice. It, it would be appropriate for Paul at this point, I mean, viewing it from our perspective and often the way we respond in pain or affliction, for Paul to say, God, pull the church of Thessalonica out of this misery so that they can be effective in the kingdom work. I mean, that's what we often think, right? If I could just be comfortable, if I could just have all of my finances straightened out, if my, if my marriage could be fixed, then I could start talking about Jesus. Then I could be effective in the work. Then I could be focused on the Great Commission. If I could just have everything in my life to line up and be perfect. But I want you to notice what Paul prays here. 
to this end, we always pray for you. And here's what he prays. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. That sounds a whole lot like what he said in verse 5. And you know the context of verse 5, right? Suffering and affliction. Paul says that his ongoing prayer for this church is that when they stand before Christ, they'll be able to stand having done all to stand in their faith, having endured. In other words, they won't have to hang their head in shame that they've been worthy to carry the gospel to the nations. They've been worthy to take up a cross, not because they're good people, but because they chose the path of suffering because Jesus chose the path of suffering. And he says that everyone who follows after him will experience the same thing. You will be hated for the world for my cause. Don't you want to stand before Christ with your head up saying, I didn't quit. I didn't give up. It got hard. There were times I almost did. But Jesus, you didn't give up on me, and I didn't give up on you, and now I want the biggest hug I've ever got in my life from my Lord and my Savior, and I want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. Well done. Paul says, that they may continue the work. Notice this, be worthy of his calling. And then he says this, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. You know, it sounds like Paul is kind of praying here that the church would not only continue to be effective with the gospel, but continue to expand, to continue to walk in his power to continue to do what they've been called to do. Now, we've got to get this, because if, if, if they've already been persecuted for taking a stand for Jesus, and Paul's asking them not only to continue, but to go deeper into that, what can we expect as a result? More problems. You know what Paul's doing here? Paul's not asking for this church to be removed out of the trouble. He's praying that they will continue to be faithful, and as a result, more trouble's going to come. He's not praying at all for them to be removed. He's praying for them to be faithful and to continue to endure. He says that every work of faith by His power, not their power, His power, verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. How are you most glorified? How, how do you bring glory and honor and worship to God? being faithful in the middle of the storm and still choosing to glorify and honor God in the middle of the mess you're in. I don't know about you, but it's, it's easy for me to, to sing some songs of praise when everything's going good. It's, it's easy to, um, to talk about how good God is when everything's lined up and perfect. But it's a whole different set circumstances, a whole different level of worship when you choose to worship Him in the middle of your pain. When, when God hasn't shown you the edge of the storm yet, and you're in the middle of it, you don't know, you don't know how much longer it's going to be. Some of you have been in a storm for 20 plus years. And you still don't see the edges. And it's, it's awful tempting. It's awful tempting to put your head down. It's awful tempting in that moment to become bitter. It's awful tempting in that moment to become pessimistic. It's awful easy in that moment and to do exactly what Satan longs for you to do. And that is simply throw your hands up, decide that God's in his lone chair, and you're all alone. Satan would love for you to do that. Because if you can get to that point, you will never talk about Jesus to any of your friends or your family. You're not going to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're going to have some serious doubts about whether he's good at all. Because the storm is ongoing. Paul says, our chief end is to glorify God. And we best glorify Him when the wind is blowing and the rain is falling and things are blowing up all around us. He says, so that the name of Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him. That you may be glorified in Him. Not that we're looking to be put on a pedestal. But what Paul is saying is that as we glorify God, God reaches in, Christ reaches in, and He elevates us, He helps us, He strengthens us, and yes, glorifies us. And it just gets this endless cycle of us glorifying God, God helping us, intervening, helping us to get through the mess that we're in. Paul says, this is the prayer I'm praying for you, church at Thessalonica. Not that you will be 
pulled out of the struggle, that you will be faithful under the struggle, and that you will continue to glorify God in the middle of the struggle so that your faithfulness will continue and the gospel will go forth. That sounds, that sounds pretty biblical, doesn't it? Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus told us as well. Folks, the hardest prayer you'll ever pray, maybe this week, as this thing continues to churn out in the Atlantic, what if, what if you open up the weather report tomorrow and all the experts, all the weather prophets, that's what I call them, weather prophets, What if all the weather prophets are all saying the same thing? And that red line of that eye is coming straight over Lumberton. You didn't want to hear that part, did you? Yeah. You see, the church at Thessalonica, I would imagine as they're reading Paul's prayer, they're hoping that Paul's going to pray them out of this persecution and affliction. That's a natural human response, that whenever we're in trouble, we want out as quick as possible. But what if? What if... God in His sovereignty allows us to see a third major hurricane in less than three years. The hardest prayer you'll pray this week, as you become, is that if that becomes the reality, the hardest prayer you'll pray this week is the same prayer that Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Hard. I got that. God being perfect and God being holy and God being in control doesn't necessarily mean that your life is going to be a life of comfort. God is far more concerned about your holiness than He is about your comfort. Because He knows that in the the moments of that affliction, the moments of that pain, the moments of water coming up through the vents in your house, that God has some bigger plan in mind for you and for His people. Lost person, do you really want to face the unknown this week. You really want to face the unknown this week, not being prepared. God turns it back out into the ocean. You're still left. You're still left in a place where you're in darkness. And if you've come here any time at all, you've heard the gospel multiple times. If you're here today for the very first time and you're lost, how do you move from darkness into light? Well, but putting faith in Jesus, putting faith in what He's accomplished on your behalf, surrendering your life to Him, and not only that, repenting. I, Lord, the path I've been walking is broken. I, I know this is going to lead to destruction, so I'm going to give that up. I'm going to turn away. I'm going to turn away from that. I'm going to turn towards you. You can do that by prayer. You can simply say it out loud, but listen. Your, sur- your future is uncertain as far as what's going to happen this week with a, tor- with a hurricane and what may or may not happen. But your destiny is assured if you die apart from Christ. Your destiny is assured. Just as sure as I'm standing on this stage, just as sure as I'm going to heaven when my heart stops beating, just as sure as I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord, you, my friend, as a lost person, will come under the full wrath of God, just as Paul described it in those verses. And I also believe that if you reject Christ and you end up in that place, you're going you're gonna to remember the words that I said to you on this day. And they're going to know at you for eternity. Why in the world would you want to keep putting this off? Today is the day of salvation. Right now, right now in this moment. These, look, these people in this room, they love you. Th- these people are not going to ridicule you. Th- these people are not going to point their fingers at you. These people are going to embrace you and they're going to love you and they're going to help you walk this out. But you got to choose. I can't choose for you. Grandma can't choose for you. Today's the day of salvation because we have no promise of tomorrow. Father in heaven, in this moment of commitment, may we choose wisely. I believe that you are drawing some folks to yourself. I believe that. I believe that every week. Father, the the heavy, hard words that Paul said to this church, I pray are ringing in the ears of the lost people in this room right now. And Father, we don't want them to be motivated just by fear. We want them to be motivated by faith and a drawing of the Holy Spirit. So Father, we ask that you would draw a lost person to you today. 
that they would put faith in you today. We have more than, more than enough people in this room that would love to have that conversation with anybody. But eternal destruction, separated from you, never being able to experience love or grace or mercy, too much at stake here. It's too much. Father, they need to quit caring about what other people think. They need to quit holding on to that addiction that's bringing nothing but destruction into their life. Father, hell is a reality. And we have no promise of tomorrow. So Father, I pray that you would take your word and your power and draw them. For the disciples in this room, many are going through many different storms and they're in the middle of it. They don't see the edges of it. They don't don't see any relief anytime soon. From our perspective, Father, it seems like it's just going to go on forever. But from your perspective, you're working in so many ways. What you're asking us to do is to endure. What you're asking us to do is to put our eyes on you. What you're asking us to do is to walk by faith. Father, that may require some conviction in our lives about where we have our eyes cast. Father, it may be that we need to change our understanding through your word and the Holy Spirit about how big and mighty and beautiful you are. It may be, Father, that we've been running to other things. Father, you know this. When struggle comes, when when problems come, it, it reveals the foundation of our life so clearly. It may be, just maybe, we're... We've got a false God in our life that we are depending upon. And you're saying, put your trust in you. Well, you know the hearts of your people. Have your will in your way. and May we not offer any excuses in this moment because the storms are raging. We want to be found faithful. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 